Please open your Bible to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. And as you turn there, I want to begin by asking a question. When you go on a trip or you go someplace new, someplace you haven't been before, do you like to know what to expect? And there, there are going to be some crazy people in here that don't like to know what to expect. I'm not one of those crazy people. I actually like to know what to expect. Even this past week, as I was going to Athens, Tennessee, which I'd never been to before, I, I actually looked up like uh, the place they met. They met at a, at a YMCA in, in Athens. And so like, I went on to Google Maps, and I went to the street view, and like, I wanted to have an idea. Like, where am I going? Um, I like to know what to expect. Uh, and my wife, every morning... That if she's going down into NIH, she does a couple times a week in the morning, and she likes to know what to expect, and so she'll pull out Google Maps, and she'll look at the traffic. What's the traffic situation? She's going to go the same way either way, but she likes to know what to expect. Uh, I think we're kind of, we're, we're wired that way. Sometimes, especially as you get older, sometimes we're not the ones going, sometimes we're the ones sending. And so we're sending someone else into a situation that they've never encountered before. And so we try to prepare them with what to expect. And we might give them some instructions along the way. I remember uh, the first birthday party that we sent our oldest son, Corey, to. And he was, I think, around five. And I did my best to set his expectations for what might take place there and who's going to be there and what things he might be doing. But I didn't just set those expectations. I also gave him some instructions, like stay with the group and make sure you're grateful and thank the people that invited you and have self-control. I provided instructions and expectations. I knew it was important for him to have a clear idea on how to behave and what to expect as he went to this party. Now, in a way, this is just what Jesus purposes to do in the text we come to today. He gives his disciples instructions and sets their expectations for the mission that he is sending them on. And throughout the last couple of chapters of Matthew that we've been in, Matthew 8 and 9, we've seen Jesus not only announcing but showing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. And when God's kingdom breaks into a fallen world, we see the effect, the impact that it has. And so we saw storms calmed, and we saw the mute speak, and the blind see, and demons cast out, and the crippled walk, and the dead raised to life, and Sinners being forgiven of their sin. Things never before seen take place. The impossible happens when when God's kingdom breaks into the world, when Jesus shows up. And last week we saw how the, the compassion of Jesus really fueled his mission. Jesus looked out and saw the crowds harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And he came to them out of his compassion and in his mercy, he comes to us. And throughout these chapters, the disciples, this, this merry band of 12, they've kind of been background figures, kind of on the, on the fringes of the narrative. And as we saw last week, this is for good reason, because they're pretty much a group of unremarkable men, most of whom we know next to nothing about. But Jesus has incredible plans for these men and a purpose for them. And at the beginning of chapter 10, we see how out of his own compassion, Jesus tells the 12 disciples, he calls them to go out with his authority. In their mission, they, they demonstrate, they put on display the fact that God's kingdom has come. And so in verse 1, we read that on Jesus' behalf, they are to, to cast out unclean spirits and to heal every disease and every affliction. That's what Jesus sends them out to do. He gives them his authority. 
And he provides his disciples with specific instructions and expectations for their ministry. And that's what we're going to give our attention to this morning as we consider our text. Now, just before we, we jump into the text, just two thoughts I want you to keep in mind. You may be wondering, why are these instructions and expectations relevant to us today as we're gathered in this, in this cafeteria? Two, two things. One, I want to say, God's word reveals God to us. And so even in these instructions and expectations that Jesus is putting forth, they're telling us about him. We are seeing God in his word. God reveals himself in his word. So bear that in mind and have eyes to see, all right, where is God being revealed? Where is he revealing himself? And number two thing to keep in mind is that God still speaks today. God's word is relevant to us. If you're young or if you're old, God's word is relevant to you. God speaks to us today. And he speaks to us in order to reveal himself to us. So that's what's happening. That's why we want to give our attention to these verses. And I think we're going to find them more, more relevant than we might first think. So since this is a longer passage we're going to be looking at, we're going to be looking at pretty much the whole of chapter 10. Uh, we're going to read it through section by section as we go. And we're going to do that under a couple different headings. And the first heading is this, instructions for the mission. So beginning in verse 5 of chapter 10, we read this. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. The first thing that we see is Jesus instructing his disciples on where to go. He gives them a destination, and he also tells them what they are to do. He gives them a job. He gives them a task. He tells them to go to the lost sheep of Israel. And these are those we we just saw described at the end of chapter 9, where Jesus calls them sheep without a shepherd. And when Jesus looked out and saw, he had compassion on them. And so he sends his disciples to them. But you may be wondering, why not the Gentiles? Why not the Samaritans? Well, the mission of the disciples was to begin like the mission of Jesus. It was a mission to the Jewish people, to the people that God had chosen, to the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And it's helpful to to bear in mind that, that God made a covenant with Abraham way back when. And he told them, one of the things that he told, told Abraham was that he would be a blessing to all nations. And so it's in blessing Abraham that all nations are going to be blessed. And so that's where the mission of God begins. That's where the mission of these disciples is set to begin. It will certainly expand beyond that. And we're going to see that, but not yet at this point. Now, for now, the destination for the disciples' mission is to the lost sheep of Israel. That's their destination. Now, along with this destination, they're given a job, a task. And he tells them what to say, what to announce, and how to go about it. And the message that the disciples are to proclaim, this is the job that Jesus gives them, It's the same as his. It's announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're to proclaim what they have already seen in Jesus. And as an aside, this this applies to us today as well. Our message is the same. The kingdom of God has come. It has broken into this fallen world. And it has come in the person and work of Jesus. So we don't need to come up with something new, something fresh, something original, what we are to do is to tell the old, old story again and again. We are to bear witness to what has already been revealed. 
We are not to tell people what we think they want to hear. We are not to announce to people a message that fits the values of our cultural moment. We are to proclaim one thing in our mission. We are to proclaim Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim who he is and what he's done. So that's our our message. And that's the message that he gave to the disciples. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And next, Jesus gives them instruction on what they need to do this job. Or more specifically, as we're going to see, what they don't need to do this job. Look at the beginning, look at the end of uh, verse 8 there. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or staff. For the laborer deserves his food. And Jesus is telling them that all that they've received is a gift. So give it to others as a gift. This mission is not about personal gain. It's about free grace. It's about abundant mercy, generous compassion. So as you go, faithfully imitate Jesus. He was, he was the one who had no place to lay his head. And as you imitate him, as you follow him, you will find those who welcome you and care for you and those who don't. Look at verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And when he says that, he's talking about the household, the people that are there, not just the, the place. Just to make sure we're all clear. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Verse 14, and if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. And Jesus says of those that receive you as you go, bless them. But there are places that Jesus sends his disciples that will not receive those disciples. And Jesus says, shake the dust off your sandals. Have nothing to do with them. Just move on. Now, this might seem kind of cold to us. It seems kind of cold to me. And you might be thinking, doesn't love bear all things? Doesn't love call us to persevere? Yes, love calls us to do these things. But that love is embodied as we proclaim this message. Christ crucified. We proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we're called just to plant seeds. And in a sense, Jesus is telling his disciples, there, there are more seeds to be planted. The harvest is plentiful, as he said at the end of chapter 9. There are more places to go, more people to hear. So, so keep on proclaiming. Keep at the task that I've given you. And for us today, I think we should find some comfort in this instruction because it implies that God is the one who brings the results from our proclaiming. There's not some scoreboard in heaven keeping track of how many conversions have occurred because of your evangelistic efforts. There's not some scoreboard that's keeping track of how many lives have been changed because of you. There's not some scoreboard in heaven that that puts on display how effective you've been as a disciple. This scoreboard doesn't exist because the results aren't yours to make happen. Lives aren't changed and people aren't saved because of you. Lives are changed and people are saved because of God. So our call today, Jesus' instruction to us, as well as his disciples, is that because of who he is and what he came to do, just go and tell others about him. Proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is the instructions that Jesus gives. 
Now, after providing these instructions on where the disciples are to go, what they are to do, and what they need to do it, Jesus turns to expectations that they should have on this mission. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time, on these expectations for the mission. As we make our way through the rest of our text, we're going to consider four expectations that Jesus gives his disciples in their mission. So this is what you should expect. Number one, expect opposition. Expect opposition. Look at 16, chapter 10, verse 16 through 25 with me. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Now, it can be all too easy for us to have unrealistic expectations about the mission that Jesus has given his followers. And we subtly buy into this idea that that people should like us and that things will go well with us. We think that if we do what God wants us to do, we wouldn't say this, but we think that if we do what God wants us to do, what he calls us to do, then everything's just going to go great. But wrong expectations do not make reality. And Jesus wants his followers to know what they're getting into. So look where he begins. Look at how he describes his disciples and the people that he is sending them to. In verse 16, it says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, notice first who is doing the sending here. Jesus says, I am sending you. The mission starts with his commission, with his telling his disciples to go. It's not an accident, not a mistake. He, he purposes to send his disciples out. And it's important to remember that because of what comes next. Look at how he describes Jesus, his followers. He describes them as sheep. Jesus talks a good deal about sheep throughout his ministry. And already in, in Matthew, we've come across sheep several times. And what have we learned about sheep? We've learned some things about sheep as we've, we've gone. Sheep are pretty dumb and helpless animals. It's one of those things that we've learned. They're dumb and helpless and they need protection. They need someone to provide for them, to care for them. But Jesus says, I'm sending you out as sheep. And he's sending them out as sheep. Where do these sheep go? I mean, we might be thinking of Psalm 23 here. If I was a disciple, I would hope I was thinking of Psalm 23. Oh, he's going to lead me out into green pastures and beside still waters. Like, I'm down for this. This sounds good. No, Jesus sends these sheep into the midst of wolves. No shepherd in their right mind would send their sheep into the midst of wolves. Now, I need some help from some of the kids here. What might wolves do to sheep? Sheep. 
What might they do? Just shout it out. Eat them. They might eat them. Wolves threaten sheep. It's bad news. But here, Jesus sends out his followers as sheep into the midst of wolves. Why would he do that? He's sending them out, and he knows they're going to be rejected. They're going to be attacked. They may be killed. Jesus sends them out knowing you're not going to have your best life now. He sends them out knowing they're going into danger. But this is all a product of following Jesus. This is a part of what it means to be like Christ. Look again at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Jesus is saying that this is how the world treats me. This is also how it will treat you. But this is not a hopeless message for us. The fact that we should expect opposition is not a hopeless message. In fact, Jesus uses this to point to his power, to his provision for his followers. So Jesus says to expect opposition, but next he calls them to expect his care. Expect his care. Jesus is the one who comes as the good shepherd to care for his sheep. He's the one who looks out at the crowd and sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And so he comes to care for them, to protect them. And even as he sends his sheep into the midst of wolves, he goes with them and cares for them. And we've already seen this in our text as we've gone. I just haven't pointed it out. When Jesus tells his disciples to, to travel light, he tells them that there will be those who receive them and will care for them. A laborer deserves his food. Then look again at verses 19 and 20. He's saying when, when, when you're arrested and they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus is telling his followers that as he sends them, he will care for them. He will provide for their physical needs and he will give them the words to say at the moment they need it. This is the shepherd's care for his sheep. And it shouldn't, it should result, it should result for us in not being anxious, in being free from the fear of people and what they might do to us. Look at our next section, verses 26 through 33. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now thanks be to God for his word. Now do you know what the most common command in the Bible is? The command mentioned more than any other. Do not fear. It's repeated about a hundred times throughout scripture. Do not fear. And it's not all that surprising when we think about why this might be. Because Jesus, as he cares for his sheep, he knows that we are all too prone to think that what we see is all that there is. It's easy for us to think that our greatest enemy is death. That our greatest enemy is sickness and decay. 
It's easy for us to fear what people think of us or what we might lose. And we hate shame, and we hate insults and injustice and turmoil. But Jesus comes and says, do not fear. Do not fear because I care for you. And here he uses the picture of, of two sparrows sold for a penny. Now sparrows were, were thought of at this time as, as the smallest bird there is. I mean, they were essentially just meaningless, insignificant. And a penny was an insignificant amount of money, just like it is today, largely insignificant. You walk by a penny on the ground, you normally don't pick it up. Some of you children might pick it up, but that doesn't speak to its significance. Not worth much. For us, it might be more helpful to think of like goldfish. I mean, you go to, go to a carnival or fair and you see all those goldfish and you can get one for like a quarter or throw whatever in the jar and you get a goldfish. It's insignificant. doesn't mean much. Flush it down the toilet when you get home. doesn't really matter. But Jesus is saying, I know about these small insignificant things, these sparrows. Not one of them falls to the ground apart from my knowledge, apart from my care. So if I'm able to care for those small things, how much more am I able to care for you? Do not fear, Jesus is saying, because I care for you. But not only that, Jesus says, do not fear because I know who is mine. He says, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now we are a people, a culture that tends to care about hair in general, but we don't really care about hairs specifically. Like single hairs. Do you know about how many hairs most people have on their head? Most people. About 100,000. About 100,000 hairs. Do you know how many hairs fall out of your head about every day? About 100. Every day. But Jesus, God numbers every one of them. If God pays this much attention to the smallest things about you, how much more will he care for his followers, followers in, in matters of eternal weight and significance? So do not fear. What have you faced? Do not fear. So we hear Jesus say to expect opposition. We've, we've seen him to say expect his care. And third, Jesus says to expect division. Expect division. Look at verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. We're going to stop there. Now, not many Christians care to consider Jesus' words here. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And I think we're so unprepared to hear these words because our world has bought into the lie of, of tolerance, of pluralism. Like, that's the religious ideal of our day. Everyone has a right to pursue what seems right in their own eyes. Pursue happiness in the way that you see fit. That's what our world says. And I think as Christians sometimes, we buy into this and so we just want a nice Jesus. We want a Jesus who's nice. I, I googled nice Jesus actually this morning. And a little clip of a comedian popped up. It wasn't all that appropriate. Uh, so I'm not recommending that you go and watch this, but this comedian was saying, yeah, Jesus is nice and his message is love everyone. And then his disciples are talking back to him, like even people from another place. And Jesus says, love everyone. And like that's this comedian, that's how he conceived of Jesus. And I think most people in our culture conceive of Jesus that way. He's nice. And he says, love everyone. 
So what are all these Christians doing? Not lo- just, just loving everyone, which in our society means celebrating everything that anybody decides to do. Now, to say that Jesus comes not to bring peace but a sword is not saying that Jesus comes to promote violence. He doesn't come violently. He's saying in his compassion, in his love, that there is also going to be division that takes place as a result of his message. Because our one need, the one need that we have, is to be made right with God. And sin creates division between us and God. And the only solution to our problem is in Jesus. It's it's an exclusive message. And in him is all we need. He is the greatest treasure of our longing souls. And as you follow him, there will be those who see that as divisive. And it is. Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's no other way. And Jesus wants us to know what to expect. We should expect division. But again, keep in mind his care as we think about that division. Jesus knows exactly where we are. He numbers the hairs of our heads. Not a sparrow can fall without his knowledge apart from his sovereign prerogative. But sometimes division will come. But the fourth thing that we can expect that Jesus highlights for us is to expect reward. Or we might say this, expect that it will all be worth it. We can expect this. Look at verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Now Jesus is very clear with the expectations that his followers should have. There is great cost in following Jesus. There's great cost in following Jesus. To follow Jesus is not just to to add something to your already great life. There's great cost in following Jesus. It will mean persecution at some point. It will mean hatred from the world. It may mean division in your own home. It may mean opposition from those closest to you. But it's not just that. Jesus says that following him will cost your life. Jesus says in verse 38, And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now we tend to think of the cross as this wonderful religious symbol. So I'm going to wear this cross around my neck that represents what Jesus has done for me in his death. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die on the cross for me. And he has. And this is worth celebrating being grateful for. But to the original readers of Matthew's gospel, the cross was every bit the symbol of torturous death that the Romans meant for it to be. It meant suffering. It meant being cursed. It meant being rejected by society. It meant death. 
for the cross represented. And Jesus says in that context, take your cross. Take your cross. Jesus is saying, following me will cost you your life. Look again at verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, if if finding your life in this world is all that you're living for, you will discover that all of your efforts have been in vain. And Jesus is the one whom you should fear because he is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He is the one who has come to judge the living and the dead. Those who deny him, he himself will deny before his father. But those who take up the cross... Those who follow Jesus and die to themselves, those who lose their lives for his sake, they will find life. They will find everlasting life, life that death cannot touch. And as we, as we looked at uh, a couple weeks ago, death for these people is just like sleep because they will rise again. But what does this mean for us? What does it mean to take the cross? What does it mean to die to ourselves? We can, we can say that. It's a very Christian phrase. But what does it mean? What does it look like? It means that we are no longer driven by our selfish desires. We're no longer driven by our own happiness, trying to be happy. Or our own, our own prestige. We're not just trying to be great. Or our own acceptance, just trying to be everything to everybody. To die to ourselves means that our affections, our desires, our wills, our actions, our thoughts, they're all shaped by Jesus Christ. Shaped by who he is and what he's called us to do. It's to say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, the call to us today is to live in the good of this new life. The old is gone and the new has come. While we will face suffering, difficulty, division in this world, we can take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. In the coming of his kingdom, he sends us out not on our own, but he goes with us by his spirit. He provides for us. He sustains us. He cares for us. He rewards us. The cost is nothing compared to the reward. Though tears may cloud our eyes, this is not a hopeless, joyless mission that we have been brought into as Christ's followers. God delights to bless his children, to give them gifts to enjoy. And although we may feel like little ones, insignificant in this world, God is with us. God is for us. And God will keep us. And one day, Jesus will come again. We live in this this point between two ages where God's kingdom has been inaugurated in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we enjoy the goodness of that, the blessings of that, the, the life of that. But what we only see in part right now, one day we will see in full at Christ's return. So we want to live with, with eternity in view. We want to keep, keep the end in mind. Because there is one who on that day will stand as our advocate. Because everyone who acknowledges him before men, he will also acknowledge before his father who is in heaven. So our hope, brothers and sisters, is not in in what we do. 
Our hope is uh, not in what we have. Our hope is not in a good and peaceful and prosperous life now. Our hope is in the inheritance that has been won for us in Jesus Christ. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that that reveals yourself to us. Thank you that you are a God who is sovereign over all things. Thank you for, for being a God who does not call his followers to do what he himself was willing to do. And thank you that as we, as we go, as we go forth, you go with us. In every circumstance, in every situation, you care for us. Though opposition may come, though we may face division, persecution, hostility. And thank you that you are the sovereign God who cares for his sheep. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.